the supernatural as something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, flying solo for this special recorded edition of Spooky South Coast. And uh, we've had some sports that have kept us off the air on WBSM as well as a Legend Trips event. But uh, we are very excited to be able to provide you this program via podcast. Because joining us is Nick Redfern. Nick works full-time as an author, lecturer, and journalist. He writes about a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot, UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster... Alien Encounters, and Government Conspiracies. He writes for UFO Magazine, Fate, and Fortean Times. His previous books include Keep Out, The Real Men in Black, The NASA Conspiracies, Contactees, and Memoirs of a Monster Hunter. An extremely popular media guest, Nick appears on several television documentary programs, and he's joining us here once again on Spooky South Coast to talk about his new book, The Monster Files. Welcome back to the show. Well, thanks, Tim. Thanks a lot. And it seems like every time we have you on, you know, we, we do these kind of podcast-only episodes. Sooner or later, we're going to get you on a Saturday night and, and get get it going live. Yeah, that would be cool. So this new book now, Nick Redfern's Monster Files, it's a topic that you've covered in the past, uh, writing about different uh, cryptids and, and different strange and unusual creatures, but this is a different approach for you with this book. Yeah, I've written about seven or eight books on various aspects of cryptozoology. Cryptozoology being the study of unknown animals like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Abominable Snowman, the Chupacabra, etc. And um, this one's a bit of a departure because pretty much all the other books I've written on this particular subject have been sort of done road trip style where I've gone on expeditions and then sort of written it up in the form of like a diary type book. Um, which is you know, how I usually do it, road trip style. But this one's a bit different because it deals with government files um, on strange creatures. In other words, it's sort of like a, an X-Files type study, but where each of the chapters is not around UFOs or conspiracies or you know, anything like that. It's actually based around sightings and encounters involving weird creatures. And um, a lot of people, even within cryptozoology, aren't sort of aware or haven't been, you know, of the sheer extent to which government agencies all around the world have had some sort of involvement in, in weird creatures over the years and the decades. So that's what sort of prompted me to, to write it, was the fact that, you know, I always try and you want to bring something new to the table for the readers. So I thought, well, a book that looks at what government agencies know rather than what just what cryptozoologists know uh, would be sort of a new slant on it. Right, but it's hard enough to, to collect these stories when you're just looking for general encounters that people have had, and, and maybe some cryptozoologists have looked into things over the years, but when you're talking about getting into government files, and that must be even harder because now you're going up against uh, disinformation in addition to information. Um, well, I mean, it depends really, because I mean, this is sort of a lot. This isn't like a military secret or you know stuff I'm digging into. It's it's sort of more quirkier, weird files. So. Mm-hmm. When I got snippets of stories and I knew there was official interest, it was it was literally a case of just filing freedom of information requests. And in most cases that um, where I applied for them, the the government agents were very helpful. They were like, yeah, he, you know, here's the files. They declassified and they declassified them officially and legally to me. You know, I don't get involved in the whole issue of leaked files or anything like that because that's that's inevitably going to end you up in deep, deep trouble. Right. You know, the, the files I use in my books are ones which have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act legally, uh, which have been declassified. Um, so that's what I did with this book. I mean, it's it's filled with various reports from around the world where agencies, um, I have to say, you know, they were very good about it. Um, they released them, and, and even in a couple of cases where they were redacted, there were still portions that were readable. So, um, you know, I found that encouraging. But it didn't so much surprise me because, as I said, we're not dealing so much with, you know, a, a regular military issue, or which, you know, is some things I don't really investigate, you know, sort of political stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, this was sort of on, on, the, on the weirder side, you know, involvement with strange animals, which I guess 20, 30, 40 years after some of the files were compiled, it wasn't sort of perceived as being, um, you know, something that had to remain classified. It was just, I guess, not many people had really tried to get the files before. So, in other words, they just sort of sat on a shelf 
awaiting declassification, if you like. I'm sure a lot of these stories, you know, are things that are bandied about in the particular offices that may have the files on them over the years. You know, like uh, when, when an incoming recruit comes in, you know, these are the stories that they start hearing about from the veterans. It's yeah. something that just was probably a lot of internal conversation over the years before you came along. Oh, yeah, I'm sure, you know, sort of word of mouth and sort of institutional memory, you know, it's like, oh, these are our weird files, you know, when right. you get the job or whatever. And, um, but again, it's sort of like a fascinating and weird bit of, of military and intelligence history, you know, as to how and why this involvement and interest has gone on for so long. And, and probably to an extent, you know, it probably still does go along, go on in some quarters. You know, I have got cases in the book officially documented like from the 1990s, etc. So it wouldn't surprise me that, um, you know, if we didn't uncover other stuff in the next few more years as well. well. It's really interesting when you read about some of the programs that were put in place, and you know, uh, some some of them being just rumors, uh, things like the the manimals, you know, trying to put together a, a soldier that's half human, half ape, or, or trying to come yeah. up with these hybrid creatures that could be bred for, for the purposes of defense. And it just seems like... Uh, you know, the, the stranger that they got, the more interesting the case may be because there seem to be a lot of examples that you give in the book that maybe these aren't just, you know, something that existed solely on paper. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's a fact that government agencies, you know, around the world um, explore alternative ways of beating the enemy or, you know, getting the upper hand, so to speak. And you know, um, ways to defeat the enemy, often using psychological warfare and alternative methods to having to avoid sending troops into battle and risk them getting shot. You know, there are all sorts of different ways of combating and beating the enemy. So um, I think probably all this comes into play, you know, when it comes to addressing these various issues. It's sort of what's the capital gain of investigating it, or is there any? And sometimes, you know, a project um, is seen as being feasible or doable and then over time it's shown not to be workable and it's shut down but the files are just preserved you know for posterity or whatever when you're putting all these uh stories together i mean did, did it start to click some of the things that you've heard uh cryptozoologically over the years uh, that some of these stories that just regular people have had as sightings may have ties to these government files yeah well i mean what kind of along those lines yeah i mean one of the things that's been doing obviously doing a lot of crypto research for sort of 15 20 years i heard snippets of stories you know where there was official interest for example british government interest in big cat sightings you know sort of escaped large cats running around the uk like leopards which the government clearly tried to play down you know for fear of, of worrying people and there have always been rumors of um sort of an official project or a or almost like a word of mouth not to talk about this within government circles or to play it down. And so over the years, I got snippets of stories like this where, you know, somebody would say, hey, when I was in the military, you know, we went on this big cat hunt on the wilds of Dartmoor, England or whatever, and we were told not to talk about the fact that we were trying to hunt these big cats down. And, of course, then years later, some of these documents actually did begin to surface, showing that the government was looking for these big cats. Um, so that's how a lot of it began, was people contacting me and then me using the bare bones to try and uncover further parts of the story. And then as I began to do that, then you're in a position more to apply for files when you can tell the relevant agency, you know, this is what I'm looking for, this is the relevant time period. But that's something you have to do with the Freedom of Information Act. You know, it's no good saying, dear British government, I want your reports Please sending to me on big cats you know mm -hmm. it's not that easy you've got to be able to try and determine which military unit was involved what the dates were and what the location was and then ask if the relevant log books or you know station log books and diaries for that base and that period have anything relevant and then they go and check them and, and say yes they do or no they don't and yes you can have it or no you can't you know you've got to be quite specific when it comes to filing requests and so it's like a catch-22 thing you can't get the information released until you can provide information to that allows them to search for the material. But unless you've got the information, it's difficult for them to search for it. So. Right.
and it is kind of circular uh, too, in the way that um, you know we hear about these cases like Bigfoot, you know, uh, Yetis, things like that, and then you see that there's government interest in them. Uh, but one of the cases that I thought was particularly interesting was the Flatwoods Monster, which we've all heard that story. Anybody that follows crypto stories knows about the Flatwoods Monster. But uh, in, in the book, you talk about the fact that it could be a, a creation of America's intelligence community. Yeah, this is a very weird story. I mean, the, the Flatwoods Monster was this strange creature that was seen, as you might guess from its name, in the little town of Flatwoods in West Virginia. Now, Flatwoods is still only a small to, town today with just several hundred people in its population. But back in 1952, there was a major wave of UFO activity over the United States, which kind of culminated in a, a famous series of encounters across two weekends in July 1952, where there were multiple UFO reports across Washington, D.C. They were tracked on airborne radar, ground radar. Uh, the FBI and the military were involved in trying to figure out what was going on. And it was in broadly the same time frame that this incident at Flatwoods occurred. And it essentially involved the a sighting of this sort of giant, monstrous, humanoid creature that became known as a Flatwoods monster. And the story was that a number of people in the little town saw strange lights and in the sky and thought something had come down behind this large hill. So they trekked up there, uh, sort of like a typical sort of rural, you know, wooded, uh, hilly area, and didn't say anything at first, but suddenly this sort of 12-foot-tall, glowing-eyed contraption loomed out of the trees. And it was described, as I said, about 12 feet tall, and it had these strange, like, electric sparks and arcs coming from it, kind of like you imagine in these old black-and-white Frankenstein movies, you know, when it, Dr. Frankenstein pulls a lever and suddenly, you know, the monster comes to life and there's sparks and, like, lightning and all sorts of flashing in the lab, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but the monster was sort of surrounded by all these weird lights and flashes, etc. And it had this strange-shaped head. It was like the... It was like the um, Ace of Spades image in a deck of cards. Um, and quite naturally, you know, when you're sort of faced with this glowing-eyed, sparking, 12-foot-tall monster, that all the people fled. And they sort of tentatively went back a few hours later, but there was no sign of it. Now, the case, for all intents and purposes, has remained unresolved to this, to this day. Nobody really knows what it was. The case wasn't repeated, although some people have wondered if Mothman, which was also in West Virginia, sort of 15 years later, could have been connected, you know, sort of like a glowing-eyed thing coming through the trees. And what was interesting about the Flatwoods Monster is it did seem to be floating rather than actually walking. So that is an interesting angle. So I'll be the first to meet, you know, we're not really sure what happened. And I don't think it ever will be resolved. But when I was doing research into it, um, I came across a declassified Freedom of Information Act document that had originated with the RAND Corporation. And this is a document prepared for the military on how paranormal phenomena could be used as a tool of psychological warfare. And to give people an example, there were references in there how um, stories and rumors had been created that um, when the Allies were going into battle uh, against the Germans in the Second World War, and also when you know the Russians were flexing their muscles in the early years of the Cold War, the rumours were spread that sightings of the Virgin Mary had been made following Allied troops, but not following the German troops. So the idea was to try and instill in the enemy that God and the Virgin Mary were on the side of the Allies, and the idea was to try and weaken the morale of the Germans and the Russians, etc. And so, you know, you had a lot of these weird ideas played out in this document about how, as I said, paranormal stuff, supernatural phenomena, could be used to sort of frighten and, you know, lower the, uh, I guess, willpower and threshold of the enemy. And one of the programs that was discussed in there as an example, was a, a Second World War operation that the British military initiated in Italy. And the plan was to basically go to, strangely enough, little villages in Italy, which sounded eerily like Italian equivalents of Flatwoods. So isolated little villages with just a couple of hundred people there. And the plan was to release this robotic contraption that the British Army had built. And it was described as like the Flatwoods Monster being 12 feet tall. And it had all these wires and gizmos coming off it 
that when the right buttons were pressed, it would flash and arc and sparks would burst from it, etc. And they specifically sort of released it, if you like, or unleashed it um, in areas where there was tree cover, where it wouldn't be seen too closely, but it would be seen close enough where people get the idea that it was some sort of demonic creature. Mm -hmm. And the military, the, the second part of the plan was to spread rumors that it was the devil come for the villagers because the the devil was on the side of or come to punish if you like the villagers and take them away for helping the germans it's sort of like a roundabout uh, way of, of spooking and scaring the italian villagers to try and come over onto the allied side rather than you know work with the germans etc and we don't really know to what extent it worked or if it was just some weird crackpot program that got so far and then was cancelled because it was seen as two way out but we do know from the files that this 12-foot-tall sparking monster was actually used and tested in Italian villages late at night, you know, on unwitting and unknowing villages. So when you look at the parallels, you know, the location, the small village, which could easily be targeted and watched and, and you know, determine what the local reaction was, the, the height was exactly the same, 12 feet, and the sparks and, you know, the electric static coming off it, etc. that was exactly the same. So, you know, I sort of asked the question in the book, because we, I admit we don't have the answer. I asked the question, though, is it possible this was like some sort of domestic example where the military was sort of inspired by this original British program to release one of these things and, and see how... How, how legends and myths developed and how belief systems could be manipulated and, and how people could be frightened by something that never really existed in, in literal terms. Right. I mean, it could be a matter of that. It could be kind of seeing how they would respond to uh, a boogeyman type scenario. But at the same time, I mean, what I was thinking when you put that kind of twist on it, I was thinking that uh, it could also be something that you're talking at a time when we're at the height of uh, the initial wave of UFO reports. So maybe this was a, a way to see what would happen if a creature from another planet came to this uh, country, how would the citizens react? It could, it could have been a similar exercise. Yeah, well, that, that's actually something, you know, I've addressed in a couple of books over the years, the idea that there was clearly, you know, certainly today there's a, there's a lesser, a significantly less number of high-quality reports of, like, flying saucers, UFO landings, you know, the typical stuff of aliens taking soil samples, or strange pod marks on the ground. We just don't really get much in the way of those type of reports today. Um, but back in the early 50s, we did, you know, all over the planet. It was like some sort of stealthy um, sort of investigation of the planet was going on by creatures from somewhere else. Uh, but, but they were being very standoffish. And there are a number of cases which suggest they were maybe fabricated, not to necessarily fool people, but to try and, not to fool them into believing they were, aliens were invading, but to try, if the aliens themselves weren't going to show themselves to us, the government may have needed or wanted to know how the public would react. Mm -hmm. And so if the aliens aren't going to show themselves and, and demonstrate it, what about fabricating a number of UFO incidents and watch the response of the witnesses? You know, if the witnesses thought they were real alien encounters or invasions or whatever, that would give officialdom a good uh, indication of how the population would react under a real scenario. And, of course, these events would be carefully controlled and, you know, no harm would, would be done to the, the witnesses. It really would just be a case of, of gauging their response. So, you know, I think that's an important issue to keep in mind, you know, the whole angle of, well, if the aliens aren't going to land we don't, and we don't know how people are going to respond. We have to put the issue, you know. I also wonder too, especially when you're talking about a time in, in the uh, early to mid 1950s and, and even into the 1960s, if it wasn't a matter of uh, the governments trying to prepare us for any case of foreign invaders. I mean, we're worried about the Russians at this point, the Soviets, and maybe using UFOs and, and using alien creatures was almost like a, a benign avatar that they could put in place of a Soviet invasion so they could see how the people would respond if that was to happen on our soil. Yeah, and I, and I think the, the important thing to remember on that angle is, you know, there's, there seems to be certain agencies were involved in more cryptid stories, you know, others it was strictly UFO stuff. And I think we always need to remember that, you know, when we talk about the government, it's sort of not one 
unified entity, you know, it's actually multiple agencies and departments and think tanks and little funded projects, all with their own agendas, which, you know, have sort of national security and the preservation of national security at their heart, but they're not necessarily all working hand in glove together. You know, maybe some of them, for need to no reasons, didn't even weren't even aware that the other projects existed. So, I think this is an important factor as well. That you know, people might say, "Well, why on earth would one agency be using UFOs and another one creating this weird 12-foot-tall monstrous con- contraption?" And I think the answer is because you know they weren't working together. That's the whole point. You know, that's how national security. He thrives is on need to know. You know, you're only told enough to do your own job to to preserve um, the security, etc. And so I think I think that sort of comes to mind. The idea that there are, you know, you can well imagine Air Force um, high-ranking people sitting in one office saying, you know, let's think about doing this, and then Army personnel in another on the other side of the country thinking, why don't we try that? You know, I think that probably comes into play a lot as well. Well, and they do really uh, seem to be looking for tactical advantages too in a lot of these stories. When when something happens uh, from the civilian end, it's almost like these agencies depend descend upon it to try to find a way that they can maybe weaponize it or maybe utilize it to their own example uh, for their own uh, ends. And one of those stories that comes to mind is the Minnesota Iceman because the FBI was kind of all over that story. Yeah, the Minnesota Iceman, Iceman, I should say, is a very weird story which surfaced in the mid-1960s um, by a man named Frank Hansen. And he was somebody who basically um, would put on displays at like state fairs and carnivals, that kind of thing. And um, he wasn't, as some people said, you know, um, owner of like a, a circus freak show, you know, of the olden days. But it was more, you know, look at the two-headed cow, that kind of thing, you know. And a lot of them were, were models, etc. But the one that really stood out was the so-called Minnesota Iceman. And this was described as being a very ape-like, but also primitive humanoid-type, hair-covered, bipedal creature. Um, And there are a number of rumors concerning its origins. One was that it was shot and killed in Minnesota, hence the name. Another one was that it was also shot and killed in Vietnam uh, during the course of the Vietnam War. And the story is that the body was supposedly shipped back to, back to the United States uh, by uh, U.S. soldiers in, in a body bag and sold to a, an unknown millionaire. That's the official story, at least, or one of the official stories. Um, and even to this day, we don't really know which story, if any of them, were actually true. What we do know is that Frank Hansen vehemently claimed that, you know, for a number of years, the real... Minnesota Iceman, whatever it was, like a primitive human, something similar to Neanderthal or Cro-Magnon Man, or a primitive but highly intelligent ape of some sort that science hadn't identified. We don't know. But Hansen claimed that it was the real thing on show for a while, but then this rich millionaire wanted it back, and so Hansen was forced to create like an authentic-looking model. Now, there's no doubt that the model was on display for a while and was admitted has been a model. You can actually still see the model today. It's uh, on display at the Museum of the Weird in Austin, Texas, which is sort of this cool three-story building where they've got, again, all sorts of weird-looking things on display, you know, like weird animal deformities and all sorts of stuff. So you can go to the Museum of the Weird and see that the, the, the sort of fake Minnesota Iceman that turned up a few years after the real one. Now, when the original was supposedly on display, Rumors began to circulate that, as I said, that it wasn't just an unknown type of ape shot in either Minnesota or Vietnam, but it was a primitive human. And from there, rumors or stories, if you like, circulated to the effect that, well, if it's a primitive human and it's dead and it was deliberately shot, does that mean technically in the eyes of the law that this was murder? You know, just because it's not homo sapien like us, if it's still a primitive human, it's still a primitive human, you know, and so the charges could be brought. And this mm-hmm. actually, in a roundabout way, got back to the FBI. And a special agent from the nearest office of the FBI to where Frank Hansen was living in Minnesota actually came out to his trailer where he got all his stuff on display and said, you know, I want to take a look at this Minnesota Iceman. 
And of course, Frank Hansen was a bit disturbed and worried. It's not every day, you know, the FBI turn up on your doorstep. Never mind asking to see this sort of monstrous thing frozen in a large block of ice, which is, which is what it was. And Hansen basically told the story and explained that, no, it wasn't a primitive human, it was an ape. And, um, and so the, the agent, you know, said, was satisfied by that and essentially said, well, if it's an ape, it's nothing to do with us. You know, you're free to do whatever you want with it. But Hansen, kind of being an astute businessman who put the Iceman on display whenever or wherever, you know, there was a dollar value on it, he created this huge sign which said something like the Minnesota Iceman investigated by the FBI, <laughs> which probably didn't go too, down too well with the FBI, but for Hansen's purposes, you know, it only added to the controversy. And, and it, for years, it was put on display and traveled the U.S., and, you know, people would see it and photograph it in different places. And some people swore the one they saw was the real one, and others said, well, I'm not so sure. But uh, even to this day now, if there was a real one, you know, we, we don't know where it is. But as I said, you know, the other one's on open display and... Um, you know, you can actually go and see it and get your picture taken with it as well. Well, and uh, I know that it came through uh, the south coast of Massachusetts area years ago, and, yeah. and everybody that saw it, you know, they still call into the show to this day and complain about how fake it was, but uh, <laughs> that, that's probably at the point when, you know, they were touring the model and not the original. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing because many of the original people who saw it, like Ivan Sanderson, for example, they were sure that what they saw was real. And they actually said that, you know, when they got close to the ice, they could sort of smell like rotting meat. Now, to go to that extent, you know, to make it look real to the point where you could actually fool long-standing cryptozoologists and even introduce like a smell of rotting meat, I'm not sure, you know, whether somebody would have gone to all that trouble when, the per when they knew that the person couldn't touch it and examine it because it was in a frozen block of ice. So that is kind of in favor of the idea that there were two Minnesota Icemen the admitted model and potentially the real one that, you know, was sort of whisked away back to whoever this mysterious millionaire was. And uh, and I know that, uh, at least in, in my opinion, they might have had a little bit of uh, interest in it because they had their own creatures frozen on ice. And they just want to make sure that uh, he didn't come up with one of the same things that they had. That's, that's just – and you have some yeah. stories in, in the book too that uh, kind of uh, yeah. would back that up because, you, you know, the – it's very possible that uh, we, we do have Bigfoot in the possession of the government. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of the things where it's always, you know, worth keeping in mind, you know, not just what the programs or the projects are or, what, or the fact that they exist, but why they exist and the reason why they exist or why interest is taken may actually, like, you know, you just pointed out, relate to something in the background. It might not just be directly related to, say, the Minnesota Iceman. There could be sort of a backstory that we're not seeing the full picture of that, that sort of prompted that interest, if you like. And Bigfoot's something that comes up in, in, or, you know, different versions of that type of creature, whether you want to say that Yeti and, you know, the abominable yeah. snowman and all these are, are part of the same whatever it may be. But uh, that that's a creature that seems to come up in a lot of government files across the world. Yeah, it is. And, I mean, that, that's intriguing because, you know, if Bigfoot is just an unknown ape and nothing else, you know, why would there even be government interest? You know, I mean, it's not like, it, you know, if it's just a, a North American equivalent or, a you know, a Himalayan equivalent of a, an African gorilla, you know, a, a Congo gorilla or a chimpanzee, why the interest? And um, what I've found, and granted it gets into controversial areas, is that government agencies don't seem to take an interest in every Bigfoot report under the sun, so to speak, but they take more of an interest um, where there are associations with other phenomena like UFO activity or sightings of strange lights over the woods where Bigfoot's seen in the same place and the same time. There's actually a lot of reports like that, and you know, I include these in the book. Um, so this kind of suggests to me that, you know, one of the things that fascinates me is this other aspect of cryptozoology where, you know, clearly some of these creatures are unknown animals, but others seem more paranormal-based or, you know, they are linked with things like supernatural phenomena or UFOs. And I think, you know, the, the interest taken at an official level may not just be in the creature, but because studying the creature might actually open doors to some of the answers concerning these other phenomena as well, possibly. And that might be why, you know, the Air Force, for example, was so interested in, in Bigfoot because it's not just the creature itself, but the fact that it ties into all these other uh, anomalous factors. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book, a friend of mine, Stan Gordon, who wrote a book a couple of years ago, a very good book called Silent Invasion, which deals with Stan's personal investigations of a wave of Bigfoot and UFO activity in Pennsylvania in 72, 73. Um, back then, you know, Stan was just a, a young uh, guy, and uh, we had a deep fascination uh, with the paranormal. And um, fortunately, you know, he was on hand to chronicle all these events, um, you know, and write about them and interview the people back at the time. And his book paints a huge picture of a really weird activity where people in a lot of these isolated little villages and towns, heavily forested again, rural areas in Pennsylvania, um, saw these sort of large hulking creatures, you know, approaching their farms and properties, etc., at the same time that strange lights were in the sky. Not necessarily, you know, gleaming flying saucers. Sometimes there were like little weird balls of light that seemed to be under intelligent control. But um, on a number of occasions, um, Stan found evidence where military personnel had quietly gone out to interview the witnesses after they'd had their encounters. You know, their stories are published in the newspapers and, you know, Mr. Smith of whatever road, you know, in this little village and the person was identifiable the military went out. Now, these weren't sort of like sinister interviews, you know, where the person was silenced and threatened. It was actually a case where the military opened themselves up and said, look, you know, we'd like your help and assistance, but we'd prefer it if you didn't give it too much publicity. But we want to show you a few photographs of, of things we've got on, on file and see if you can compare anything that you saw with what we've got or what we've got on file in terms of photographs. And a number of witnesses spoke about how they were visited by military personnel who opened briefcases and, you know, black and white and colour. So eight by 12 pictures would be brought out of these weird creatures and somebody might say, yeah, that sort of is close to what I saw, but that one's nothing like it. And they were like, well, you know, can you, did you see anything else weird? Did you experience any missing time or have any strange dreams afterwards? Things like this. So it seems clear that the military knew something was going on and were trying to build a pattern and, you know, approaching witnesses even. And even Stan himself was contacted um, by an arm of government and basically asked, hey, you know, if anything interesting comes up, if you get any hard evidence or really good cases, you know, could, would you mind just keeping us informed? And Stan was like, well, yes, yeah, sure. But he was baffled again as to why. But again, I think it comes back to when we look into it, Bigfoot isn't just an unknown ape. There are these weirder aspects to it that I think, the military. I actually don't believe the military is hiding all the answers and got all the answers. They may not have any answers aside from a lot of data and a lot of questions. But, you know, it's like those of us on the outside, we've got a lot of data and a lot of questions, but not a lot of answers. I think sometimes, you know, there's a tendency to think if governments investigate something, they've got all the answers. They may be as mystified as we are, but they're just looking for those answers and they've got a bigger budget to do it with. But the problem with that is is that they just can't seem to admit if they don't have the answers. I mean, I think people would feel a lot better about a government investigation into an unknown creature if the government was forthcoming about the fact that, hey, we don't know what this is either. And we'd like to work hand-in-hand -hand with people like Stan yeah. Gordon and Ivan Sanderson and Lauren Coleman and Nick Redfern and try to find these answers. But instead, you know, they try to do everything because secrecy is just the, the, the natural way in which they operate that it, it actually – tends to make things seem more ominous than they may be. Yeah, and I think, I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe some of the data is ominous, you know. We don't really know what has been collected at an official level beyond what we've got pretty much through the Freedom of Information Act, etc. Um, so maybe there are a few ominous things, or it could just be, you know, the nature of government is to sort of work outside of, you know, the general populace. And, uh, and of course, that does, you're right, you know, sort of provoke questions about, well, well, why is it going ahead like that? And, um, you know, maybe sometimes the questions are justified. Maybe other times it's just that's how bureaucracy works, you know, or it could be a combination of the two, you know. I think I'll be the first to admit that when it comes to this issue of cryptozoology and the government or governments, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's still early day, so to speak, you know. It, it's not like, like Roswell, where we've been investigating it for 30 years. This is a relatively new um, angle, uh, not necessarily new angle, but sort of newly um, investigated angle, if you like, and um, 
and I hope, you know, over time it will bring more data forward. But I think it is definitely early days in terms of what we know versus what, you know, may actually be known. And I think part of the, the problem, too, might be that uh, with such congressional oversight about the budget for these departments, that maybe they uh, they want to make sure that they're keeping this stuff under the rug because they don't want to have to go before Congress and answer questions about how much money they're spending on Bigfoot research when there's other serious budgetary concerns. Well, yeah, yeah no, I actually think that's a good point because, you know, even if the government um, or governments, again, you know, have proof that Bigfoot is real but they're not sure what it is, but they're intrigued by these weirder angles. You know, it's kind of like the whole one-upmanship thing. When when one party's in power, you know, they criticise the other party and vice versa. And I can well understand if, you know, the party that's not in power at one time uncovered that the party that is in power has a Bigfoot project. You know, they play that to the hilt, you know what I mean, in terms of, well, there are better things to spend money on, you know, than, than Bigfoot. So I actually think you know, sort of mainstream mainstream bureaucracy probably plays a part in this as well. You know, it could go from high-level conspiracy to totally bland bureaucracy. And and I think it probably hovers somewhere between the two, uh, you know, most of the time. Well, you mentioned political parties, and at least in terms of this country, uh, do you find any correlations between what parties are in power and an increase in some of these, these files and these stories coming from the U.S. government? Mm-hmm. Not not really, no. I mean, you know, again, I think it's important to remember that, for the most part, the, the files are surfacing from military and intelligence agencies through the Freedom of Information Act. And, of course, a lot of the people who are in the military, you know, they're career people, they sign up, they like, you know, they enjoy the lifestyle uh, um, and being in the military, and they're, they're there for, you know, until they reach retirement age, after they've done their, you know, their mandatory period, if they sign on, you know, as a career. And that's the same with the intelligence community, whereas, you know, people in elected government, they may only be in power for four years, or at the very most, they're going to be there for eight. And invariably, after they get, you know, if they're out after four years, they, they go on to do something else, you know, sell their memoirs or whatever, um, you know, to write their autobiography. Um, but the intelligence and the military, you know, that's a very different kettle of fish, so to speak. So, um in answer to your question, I don't think who, which actual government is in power has much of a bearing when it's the military and the intelligence agencies that are the ones, you know, opening these files and collating the material, etc. Right. Plus, these these programs must be so uh, so deep and ongoing that it's going to take a lot longer than just for the amount of time that one particular party is in power, anyway. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of these programs, they are ongoing, you know, for years, collecting data and trying to assimilate it and understand it. And, you know, sometimes with the best will in the world, four years of one person's presidency isn't going to cut it, you know, in terms of what you you need to know and find out. And that applies to any subject, you know, where there's a, a defense or a military angle to it. You know, it's like with the trying to evaluate how many nuclear missiles the Soviets had at the height of the Cold War. You know, you're not going to do you're not going to get all the answers in, say, Eisenhower's presidency or Kennedy's, you know, or Nixon's. It's going to run across and it's going to change over the years as, you know, the economy of the Soviet Union changed. And I think that's the same here, that a lot of these programs are very much ongoing. And we always have, you know, the uh, especially if you talk to uh, people like Steve Bassett, you know, like hoping that Obama is going to be the uh, disclosure president when it comes to UFO activity. You know, and it seems like uh, we, we expect these figures to come in and kind of spearhead uh, letting the public know what's been going on. And, and as Bill Clinton can tell you, you know, he didn't even get the answers. He asked the questions and he was told, you know, don't ask. So it, it goes beyond what one political party can do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I know for the most part disclosure is related to UFOs, but if it ever happened, you know, conceivably, it might touch on on Bigfoot, you know, in some of these files. But unfortunately, I'm, you know, I do believe there's a genuine UFO phenomenon, and I also do believe there are certain people within the official world who know more than we know. You know, to what extent they have answers or they've got a lot of data, you know, that that's a different matter. I don't know. But unfortunately, I do not believe that disclosure is going to happen. And that's not me being pessimistic or, you know, just negative about it. My view is that 
if there is sort of like a restricted access organization that has access to startling information, well, they wouldn't wait, if, and if they wanted to release it, they wouldn't wait, wait until ufologists go knocking on the door saying, we want this releasing. They would have done it when they wanted to do it. And the fact that disclosure has been going on for years and we've been told it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, but it never, ever does, that suggests to me that if there are these big secrets, then it doesn't matter how much knocking is done on the door, it's not going to surface until, or even if, the people who are sitting on the material are comfortable about releasing it. And the day may never come when they're comfortable about releasing it. And it doesn't matter if there are 20, 20,000 or 20 million letters being sent in. It's not going to make any difference to that black box of, you know, that black box body that, that is sitting on the data. And again, I said that's not being pessimistic. That's how government work, you know, governments work, that if it's need to know and there's no need to know, you're not going to know. You know, they don't, they don't care about what a few thousand ufologists think or, or write in their magazines, you know, that, oh, we're putting a new petition together, you know, this time it's going to work. You know, I'm sure they, they don't even give that a second thought because it's not on their agenda. You know, when it's on their agenda, and if it's on their agenda, that's when it will be released. Right, and the same could be said for these monster files, too, that, you know, yeah. if they have all these Bigfoot files uh, that they've been accumulating over the years, well, short of anybody capturing a live Bigfoot, and, and having it in their own possession, they have no reason to come forward with this information. And even then, even if that was to happen, you know, they still might just, you know, shake their hands and shake their head and say, hey, we didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I think it's lot, the only way, I think there's only a couple of ways disclosure could ever happen. If the agencies themselves or, or whatever the secret project is, if they didn't decide to release it, I think the only way it could happen is by an unforeseen event, like there was a major UFO activity, you know, somewhere in the skies, all across the planet, which could, could not be denied. Then I think pressure would be put on to the point where it would be inevitable that, you know, it would all come crumbling down. But, you know, what we have to remember with UFOs, and, and ironically with things like Bigfoot, is these beings, creatures, whatever you want to call them, they're actually, whether wittingly or not with the government, and I think it's not with the government, but they're following the same approach of taking a stealthy, behind-the-closed-doors approach. You know, it's not like we're having UFOs landing on the White House lawn or, you know, coming down to cure cancer. They're behaving in a stealthy, silent, secretive fashion as well. So, in other words that makes it even more doubly uh, difficult to get the answers. And so unless, as I said, they change their approach, and throughout history they clearly haven't, you know, they've been like a silent partner that works alongside us or does things alongside us, and we seem to be involved, and, it, you know, people talk about these genetic programs, but they, they clearly don't want to show themselves to us. So unless that changes, you know, that sort of aids the, the silence factor as well, I think. Well, and also, too, we touched a little bit upon this earlier, that, you know, this, all, all of these strange creatures that we're talking about, uh, it does have a tactical advantage if we aren't sure what they are. You know, they can use that uncertainty and they can use that uh, basic fear of the unknown as a weapon, should they so choose to do so. I mean, you write about it in the book about how they, they kind of use that to some degree in the Philippines in the 1950s. Yeah, that, that's a, a very interesting story. And um, this relates to a man named uh, General Edward Lansdale. And Edward Lansdale was a brilliant psychological warfare expert. That's to say, he was the sort of person who could essentially, I won't say win a war, but he could certainly influence key battles and situations um, without really using troops and manpower and weapons. He, uh, by, and he would do that by essentially scaring the enemy, particularly in, in parts of the world where superstitions were sort of reigned, if you like. Um, and one classic example is a program that he came up with in the early 1950s um, when the uh, U.S. government was lending assistance to the, the Philippine government, and they were battling against these rebels known as the Hooks, H-U-K. And the, the, Hook, the Hook rebels were sort of a major hostile force, and so the Philippine government said to the Americans, you know, can you help us out? And America said, yeah, sure, you know, what do you want? You know, do you want military aid? What do you want? And so it was a combination of things. But General Edward Lansdale went out there 
and got to know people in the government very well and became actually good friends with a number of the <coughs> excuse me the Philippine government people and um one of the things he did was to look at the myths and legends that the Huck rebels believed in and he actually decided to bring one of them to life and they had a, a deep belief in and a great fear of a creature known as the Aswang vampire and this was kind of like a, a Philippine equivalent of like Count Dracula you know like a blood-sucking humanoid monster that would surface at night and and prey on on the living and drain them of blood for food essentially um, and then you you know you would turn into one of these creatures um, and the more Edward Lansdale looked into it the more he found how how much the, the Huck rebels deeply feared this creature so he decided to bring it to life not physically but what he did the he set up this program where they had like a, a team of military personnel who were trained to go out into the woods where they knew the Huck rebels were and to sort of stealthily creep up on you know, a hook rebel if he was sort of the last man in the patrol or, you know, if he was just walking around patrolling the area on his own and silently kill him by... They actually created, had this device created which would could puncture the jugular wound, the vein of a man and leave two puncture wounds on the neck, you know, as if they'd been attacked by a vampire. But it was like a specially created metal device. And so the man would be killed and then they arranged to string him up by his ankles over a tree and drain the body of blood. Um, and then the next day, when, under the cover of darkness still, they would sort of lower the body and then stealthily and quietly dump it as close as they could without getting caught to the nearest Huck camp. Then, of course, the next day, the Huck comrades, you know, would sort of go out and find the body and they'd see these puncture wounds and this body just white as a sheet and clearly drained of blood. And the Hucks terrified that clearly from their perspective an Aswang vampire was in the area they would just flee you know they'd flee 20 30 miles just to leave the area and of course this area would have been a strategic military gain for the Huck excuse me for the Philippine government who are very appreciative you know to the US government for coming up with an alternative way of getting the enemy out of the area but without risking you know um, human lives and um, Lansdale stayed quiet about this for years, but decades later, you know, long after his retirement, he actually wrote about this in his autobiography and went on record about how he created this program, you know, to to uh, sort of instill the myth of the Aswang vampire as a reality in the Huck minds, and it, and it worked all too well. And um, but that was just one of a number of very strange but highly successful operations that he sort of uh, commanded. Well, one of the frequent stories that comes up uh, in the book and, and throughout the history of these files is uh, not only sea serpents and lake monsters, uh, and I don't mean to kind of lump them together because they really shouldn't be, but uh, it's probably one of the earliest, at least in, in this country, in the United States, one of the earliest uh, cryptid stories are these uh, you know, sea serpents that they reported seeing even on their way over into the New World. And I always just made the assumption, uh, hearing these stories growing up, that they were probably just encountering, encountering whales and, and other such creatures they'd never seen before. But it seems from your research in, in the book here that uh, there may be more to the sea serpent theory than I, than I originally thought. Yeah, I mean, the cover of the book kind of, in a sensationalized fashion, sort of deals with one of these files. I mean, the cover of the book has like an old 19th or 18th century pirate-type galleon um, being attacked by a giant sea serpent and almost sort of turned on its side. Um, the, the truth is, it isn't quite that sensational, but the, 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 uh, that particular cover actually does relate to one of the chapters in the book. Um, one of the most amazing things I found doing the research, and again using the Freedom of Information Act, was the British Admiralty, which essentially is the the same as an old equivalent of the US Navy today. The British Admiralty has a uh, sea serpent file that extended for about uh, 50 years, from about 1830 to about 1880. And it was packed with reports from military ships, like battleships, you know, galleons that were out on the Atlantic and the Pacific, you know, sort of sailing the high seas and defending the British Empire as it was back then. And um, the the, the file itself is, as I said, filled with all these reports where the captains and crews of these military ships had encountered, very often in the Atlantic Ocean, more so than the Pacific, giant-sized 
creatures that really you can only describe as sea serpents. They had like a, a long serpent-type body with flippers and a huge elongated neck and head that would sort of stand 15 or 20 feet out of the water. And what was amazing is in some of these cases, the, the ship's crew and captain described these creatures as being like 250 feet long. You know, it sounds like something out of some Japanese monster movie, you know, Godzilla versus whoever, you know what I mean? That's, that's how it comes across. But when you recognize the fact that when you read the reports, they're talking about the captain and the crew all sort of just stood on one side of the deck, open mouthed, watched, watching as these creatures would sort of sail past, you know, like 20 miles an hour, clearly visible and just half out the water, you know, half surfacing. Perhaps the creatures were even wondering what the ships were, you know, were they a rival creature invading on its territory? We don't know. But um, all these reports from military crews were, were quietly filed away. And what I found interesting was that whoever in the Admiralty had compiled this report, and it must have been a number of people, the fact that it spanned more than 50 years, but it also contained newspaper clippings from British regional and national newspapers um, that also talked about sightings of sea serpents by ships' crews, and also like civilian ships out on the ocean, you know, like passenger ships. So somebody was taking a deep interest in these reports. Now, although I can't prove it, what I, what I can say for sure is that there have been rumours that over the years, British Royal Navy ships have not just encountered sea serpents, but may have been attacked by them. And there are one or two stories or rumours of ships actually being sunk by them and where the, where the Royal Navy kind of covered up the event and claimed, you know, it was due to hitting an iceberg or the ship sprung a leak due to faulty design and sank. And probably, if the stories are true, almost certainly they were done to, you know, prevent fear break and hysteria breaking out and people being frightened to sort of, you know, travel the oceans. So I suspect that if even just one of these stories has some truth to it, that would explain why the British military was concerned and why it opened these files, because if one ship had been attacked, another could end up attacked, and another. So I think they wanted to keep a handle and a careful watch on it to see how things developed or didn't develop, you know. And I think, too, the other thing is the British Royal Navy had such a reputation as being so fearsome and being virtually indestructible that if these stories got out, it might have actually tarnished that reputation a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if something... I mean, back then, you know, the British Empire... You know, Britain ruled half the world at one point. Today, Britain rules Britain, you know. And that's <laughs> enough for the government to cope with the British people. You know, we're a funny bunch. And um, and so, but back then, yeah, you're right. I mean, joking aside, there was this empire, you know, it ruled over India and parts of Africa and Australia uh, in, and Canada, you know. And so anything that sort of might have impinged upon that reputation would have sort of perhaps, you know, sort of stained the image. And so, again, it may not just have been the the file was, you know, the information was hidden because of what it related to, but, you know, the, the knock-on effect, the spiraling effect of how the, the image could be sort of hurt or affected, if you like. Well, I'll give you a funny little anecdotal story about the, the British Navy uh, in the War of 1812 uh, in the town where I live, uh, Wareham, Massachusetts. Uh, the, the Nimrod, which at the time was the most fearsome ship in their navy, uh, pulled up, you know, to our harbor, and I, they, they really didn't have anything planned, and they were kind of just, you know, looking to get some supplies and move on, but because they had to keep up appearances, and they had to keep up the, you know, the the mighty uh, image of the Nimrod, they grabbed a few local residents and took them on board as, as, uh, as um, hostages, <laughs> and then they just sailed away, and they, they went about a mile up the coast and just pulled in and dropped them off again. <laughs> so, oh, that's good. Keeping up appearances, for sure. <laughs> now, uh, before we let you go, I, I do want to ask you about what was what I thought was one of the weirdest and, and just one of the strangest stories in the book, and it must have been for you when, when you first found out about it, and that's the story of Acoustic Kitty. I knew you were going to say that one. <laughs> when you started that build-up, then I knew it was going to be that. <laughs> yeah, Acoustic Kitty is one of those um, stranger-than-fiction stories that you know you could not invent you know it, it's so weird that you could not make it up uh, and i'm not making it up it was basically a cia program which had the nickname of acoustic kitty and it goes back to the mid 1960s when the cia 
came up with a, a strange and unusual and a definitely alternative idea to essentially try and install or insert is probably a better way of describing it um, sort of surveillance technology into cats living cats that's to say like insert um, radio devices an antenna into its tails into its tail that kind of thing so what you would essentially have would be like a walking meowing bugging device which could broadcast or transmit across the airwaves recorded voices etc to headquarters and the plan was to have this sort of entire fleet or how I don't know you you or tribe whatever you want to call it um of Maybe a acoustic kitties yeah of uh, of uh, acoustic kitties the the idea was to have them released in the vicinity of the Soviet embassy in Washington DC and try and train them to sort of jump the fence and wander around the grounds or with work best a stroke of luck, you know, actually go inside the embassy. And, you know, the, the thought was that Soviet embassy staff wouldn't give a second thought to seeing a, you know, a pleasant little cat wandering around the grounds. You know, they might even feed it and look after it. And the, you know, the plan was, well, maybe, just maybe, you know, while the cat or the, the transmitting equipment's turned on, you know, the cat will pick up snippets of information where a KGB agent is feeding the cat at the same time he's talking to some other KGB agent. KGB guy about a classified program. And so they actually apparently did have success in um, inserting all this technology into this one particular cat. And I actually got hold of a few files on this officially through the Freedom of Information Act, but they are massively redacted. I mean, you know, just a few snippets here and there. Um, but what we know is that on the very first sort of trial run, that the agents pulled up as close as they could to the embassy without giving the game away or looking suspicious. They opened the back doors of the van and let the cat out, gently put it on the ground and, you know, kind of um, encourage it to cross the road towards the embassy. And as he did so, he got hit by a taxi on the first run and killed. <laughs> and so, unfortunately, Acoustic Kitty became Splattered Kitty, if you like, and uh, which is unfortunate for the cat, but it is kind of an amusing story. But it was one of these projects that look great on paper, but that work less far well in practice. And so it was basically closed down, you know, with a recommendation that it not be undertaken again, because in, in the real life scenario, the the whole process was just too difficult and fraught with, well, what if or that or, you know, and, and it was just seen as too, it actually cost $10 million, which as I point out was $4 million more than the $6 million man was uh, applied to him, you know, when he was made bionic, you know, but this bionic cat, it, it just, it just did not work, you know, as inevitably it might not have done. But it's certainly, you know, full marks. It was a, an amazingly well thought out project, and you know, it probably makes you wonder has how many other ones went on of a similar nature that you know we don't even know about still today. Well, and it's funny because you said you know that it might have worked on paper, but. Looking at all the different animals they could have used for for such a, an attempt, why they have to pick the animal that is like the most independent and the least likely to listen to human beings? I mean, I've had cats for for thirty years, and I can't even train them to not go on the couch. No, I mean a dog would have been an ideal one. I mean, cats do have that image. You know, it's kind of like if you tell them what to do. You know, they have that look on their face, so they just look at you as if they might as well be giving you the finger. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, so, exactly. That's how a cat basically operates. They're their own boss and they'll come and if they want a bit of fussing and attention, they'll come over to you, you know, and, and if they don't, they won't. So, yeah, I mean, with a dog, it, it may well have worked, you know, but um, maybe maybe whoever initiated the project was a dog lover and they weren't keen on cats, so they, they didn't mind, you know, working on a few cats, I guess. <laughs> that could be, I mean, maybe they figured too, it's easier to, you know, a, a stray cat is more likely to be taken in than a stray dog. Stray dogs well, usually end up at the pound. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, we don't actually know where the first cat or, you know, however many they were going to use, where they would have come from, you know, would they have had to set up like a breeding farm or something, you know, of, uh, you know, an Area 56 or something, you know, the hangar containing all these cats or something, you know, we just don't know what the ultimate plans would have been, you know. I just I would have just imagined, you know, we would have found out about every single mouse and, and bug crawling around the embassy. Not so much about the KGB agents, but we'd know every little corner of the the house where they shouldn't have been. Yeah, exactly. That was the thing, you know, it, it was these issues of it being, 
you know, sort of haphazard in terms of you couldn't predict anything. That That's the problem where, you know, in a, in a number of cases where they tried to use animals in weird experiments, it was the unpredictability of being unable to have, you know, a trained soldier involved that, you know, sometimes a cat would just, I don't know, see a bird and wander off or whatever, you know. So, Nick, I know you're always working on something, so uh, can you kind of give us any kind of a sneak peek of what you might be working on next? Yeah, I'm working on a couple of um, UFO books, um, one which sort of relates to the whole issue of where files should exist, but we can't find them, you know, as if um, they, they belong in some of these, as they're known as special access programs, SAPs, where, you know, even through the Freedom of Information Act, we can't find them. Like, for example, the files on Roswell, um, you know, so clearly something significant happened at Roswell, but where are the papers? And there are a number of... Um, stories, actually documented cases where whole swathes of paper uh, and files from the old Roswell base from 45 to 49 are actually missing. That, that's that's a, a, a part of the official record. You know, it's not like they're being withheld. They're just gone. So the, the book covers things like that. So I'm working on that one. And um, also a couple more cryptozoology road trip type books of expeditions I've been on in the last uh, year or so and things like that. Excellent. What's the best way for people to keep up to date with all of your uh, works? Uh, well, people can reach me at my blog, which is nickredfern14, F-O-R-T-E-A-N, dot blogspot dot com. And they can reach me via my uh, Facebook link there, or just go straight to Facebook and type in Nick Redfern, and, um, and you'll find me. And, you know, always pleased to chat with people. And um, the new book, Monster Files, you can get it online at Amazon, or you can buy it off the shelf um, in Barnes & Noble. It's available sort of online and in the old-fashioned way as well. <laughs> All right, excellent. Thank you so much, Nick, and we look forward to talking to you when the next one comes out. All right, thanks a lot, Tim. See All you right, later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.